Welcome back to the UCM Veterans Voice. My name is Garrett Fuller, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dewey Ball. Andy could not be here today. Today's guest is Kelly Murphy, also known as Murph. Murph was recently featured on the CBS hit television show, Tough as Nails, where he not only participated on the show, but went home a champion. Uh, Before coming to UCM, Murph was in the uh, Marine Corps. So, Murph, how did you, where'd you grow up? How did you, what was like your life story? Well, first of all, Garrett, thanks for having me. Dewey, it's nice to be around you again. I've missed you. Great to see you, Kelly. I missed you too, sir. Well, so I, um, my dad is a California native and my mom is an Indiana native. So it's kind of strange how they met. So one day my mom moved from Indiana to California and moved right next door to my dad. So they met in high school and um, my dad got sent to Vietnam. He, w- he got drafted in the army, got sent to Vietnam, returned from Vietnam and then um, they briefly moved to Indiana where I was born, uh, my dad said, uh, hell no, uh, Indiana is too cold. So they moved back to Southern California. So I grew up in Southern California from about age two to roughly age 13. Then they moved back to Indiana. Um, right before my eighth grade year, I did eighth grade through high school uh, in Indiana. So just the, how old were your parents when they met? Uh, it's like 18 and 16. Okay. So they got married relatively young. I think my so dad was... So your mom moved to California with her parents? She moved with her mom. Okay. Yep. So my grandma had my mom at a very young age. So my mom was raised by my great-grandmother. So when my grandmother was old enough to actually like be a mom, so to speak, she she grabbed my mom, and then they moved to California. So... And that's kind of how... And so your dad was living next door with his parents? Yeah, my dad was living in a small Pomona, I think is the name of the city in California. Just a small town at the time. Now it's huge. But they were living in... He was living in Pomona, California. And then when my mom and grandma moved to California, they just happened to move in to the house that was available right next to them, and that's how they met. It's pretty romantic, though. A small Midwestern girl moves to California. I mean, that's kind of a script right there, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's a little different for for her. She, uh, you know, they didn't really enjoy California just because where they lived was a small farm community. And even though Pomona, California was small at the time, it's still a lot larger than, you know, the the backwoods of, of Indiana, so to speak. So, but... Where did you grow up in Indiana? Like what part? Uh, the town that I lived in was called Paragon. So even to this day, the town has maybe six four-way stop signs. <laughs> it has um, the post office could probably fit in this broadcast booth. And then it has a small type of grocery store that has two gas pumps out in front of it. So it's pretty and you have like the one building that this year it'll be a pizza place next year it'll be a steakhouse the next year it'll be empty the year after that the so, prime piece of commercial yeah. real estate <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. so the only thing that stands true is like the beauty salon <laughs> like that's like the one place that will never you know the small 
you know, it's basically somebody's living room that's converted into the beauty salon. <laughs> so it's a very small town, but the people are super friendly there. Like they have a town constable that um, patrols on like Friday and Saturday nights just when the kids are out having fun. But other than that, they rely on like the county sheriff for any kind of law enforcement. So even to this day, I don't think, I think, Petty theft is the biggest crime that ever happens in that community. So, so life for young Kelly Murphy, were you uh, an athlete? What was your your hobbies or interests? Did you hunt, fish? What were you up to as a young young man in that, that setting? So I would say out in California, um, California wasn't so, uh, I don't want to use a derogatory term. So when I was growing up in California, it was a lot more fun than it is now to be a youth. Because we used to be able to go up into the mountains in California, and they had, like, pull-offs of the main road, and you can go shoot. So we used to go shooting, at like, in the mountains of California at outdoor ranges. Uh, we used to fish um, and stuff like that. So shooting and fishing. Then when I moved to, to Indiana, um, probably continued fishing and then picked up some athletics. I really didn't play any sports until I was a sophomore or actually a junior in high school. Um, I threw the shot put in discus and, and played football and then went to wrestling practice but didn't wrestle on the team. Only did the wrestling practice because it, the coach said it would make us better players for the other sports. So yeah, what, you, what positions you play in football? The bench. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, wasn't, I wasn't the most stellar um, athlete. So um, – I played offensive tackle um, mostly, um, and then I played JV as a junior, which I was thankful for because at least I got to play. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up, um, like I said, I played. I didn't start till my junior year, so I played my junior and senior year of high school. So, and then the same with with shot put and discus. So I was a late bloomer, so to speak, when it comes to athletics. So I didn't really think I was interested in then. I, and all of a sudden, I found myself wanting to play, so or at least try to play. So, so you said you uh, in Indiana, you lived in a really small town. Uh, so, was your all's football team very big? Because at least the t uh, small towns, whenever I think of them, their football teams are not that big. So. Gotcha. Yeah. So this the town that I lived in didn't even have. So my high school was actually ten miles away. So I went to a high school in another town um, called Martinsville. So. So people that live in the community that even my, my parents still live there to this day. So like they have the elementary school there, but you go to Martinsville's middle schools and high schools. So you get trucked and that the Martinsville high school is actually, it's a five, a school. So it's a, it's one of the bigger schools in Indiana when it comes, cause they have one, a to five, a, and it's a five, a school. So it's a large high school. It just, it's 10 miles away from where I actually grew up. So a lot of farm community there, then kind of the exactly. rural. Yeah, out, my, yeah, yeah. my parents live right next to the corn or soybean field, whatever the, the farmer. I mean, it literally runs right next to their fence. So when he plants, like the combine or the, 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 the combine, if they're harvesting, literally comes within a foot of my, na my parents' like south-facing fence. Mm. So kind of reminds me of where I grew up because yeah, me where, too. <laughs> where I grew up, I mean, our house was literally surrounded. Uh, one corner or one side was surrounded by a corn soybean field. And then the other was just like 
you know, gra- tall grass and stuff. Gotcha. Um, so going from your time in Indiana, how did you uh, get into the Marine Corps? Well, so I just recently um, recorded a message for, for Veterans Day, for the Veterans Day homes. And that's one of the things I talked about was kind of like my my influence of mentors, veteran mentors growing up. So um, when I was little, my so my dad's a huge John Wayne fan. I think I've seen every John Wayne movie there is in existence. I was I think I was like around eight years old, and one day he's watching a movie called The Green Berets. It's based upon the Green Berets in Vietnam. Great movie. So yeah, it it just it captivated me. It caught my attention, and it started my interest in the military. Um, so then it led me to start kind of going to the library and looking up military books. I would have my mom take me to like the, the army surplus stores so I could buy like <laughs> gear. So when we went and played out in the, the orange fields, the orange groves and stuff, we'd play army, so to speak. Did you have siblings? We didn't ask you that earlier. I have a younger brother. Okay. Yeah, he's four years younger. So, so he used to play with us. So there's a group of us kids that would play army and stuff. And, um, you know, so I had an interest in the military. And then one day I came across some pictures at the house and there's a guy wearing army fatigues from the Vietnam era. Cause then I knew it was the Vietnam era cause I had studied enough. So I asked my mom who that was. She's like, it's your dad. Like, so my dad was in the army in Vietnam. So it was like my, these people I idolized on TV, you know, John Wayne playing the green Bray and, then all the the heroes I learned about, you know. And then I'm like, well, my dad is like a real hero. Like he's a guy. So I'm idolizing all these people, and it turns out. So my dad pulled out his medals and um, his dog tags, and like it just captivated me. So it started my interest in the military. And then when I moved to Indiana, um, so like I think it was my freshman year, I started. I was a newspaper delivery boy. So Gary, you're too young for this, but the movie there's a movie called Rad, and <laughs> it's a BMX movie. It's when BMX freestyle. So another this, classic movie. I've Check it out. Yeah. Okay, so you have to watch it. So, so he delivers newspapers on his bicycle, and that's what I did as a freshman. So this movie came out about the time I was actually <laughs> doing this. So I had the trick bike too. That was one of my hobbies growing up. Is was BMX tricks. You know, doing the stuff with the bikes and. So how many bones did you break on that bicycle? Actually, none. But I damaged my <laughs> shins a lot with those mm. spiky, spiky pedals that was was big in the '80s. So we, um, so I used to deliver this news newspapers, and you know, back in back then there was there was no internet to collect. You you went up to the your customer's house, and you had these little tabs that you would pull off when they'd pay. So I would go to collect, and one of my customers was Mr. Brummett. And he used to fly a Marine Corps flag on his porch. So one day, Mr. Brummett just starts talking to me about the Marine Corps. Um, and then turns out he was a, a veteran of Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima. So he, then he enlightened me, because I already knew more about the Marine Corps by then, just you know from studying the military, but to hear it from his perspective and what it was like to be a Marine, that's the first time that I'm like, wow, the Marine Corps is pretty an amazing organization that I think I'm really interested in. And then when I did start athletics, one of my biggest influences was Coach Koontz. Coach Koontz was a defensive coach. He was also the track coach for shot, put, and discus, and he was a former Marine. 
he's a big Cherokee Indian dude and like he was he was big he was probably six foot four um big man he'd get on the bench press and just rep out reps and then he'd get up and he'd be like oh my shoulder hurts that's enough for today <laughs> you didn't even warm up like he just put like 225 on the bench and just wrapped it out like it was nothing I think he was just proving a point to the kids and but coach Koontz taught me a lot about accountability because he would open up the weight room at 5 30 a.m you know classes for us started at like 7 30 so he expected his athletes to be in the gym at 5 30 a.m so and if you weren't there, he would call you. So where you at today? Did you oversleep? You know, and he would give you the right act if you weren't there. Because he's like, look, if I'm going to get up, and I'm a 62-year-old man, I'm going to get up early, and I'm going to open this weight room for you to make you better than I expect you to be there. If you make the commitment that you're going to be there, I expect you to be there. So he held us accountable as athletes, and, and not so much even athletes, just as is men and women. Just that, good human beings, yeah. yeah. If you, you yep. make that commitment, then stick to it. Yeah. Exactly. So he taught us a lot about that. Just, you know, accountability. If you give somebody your word, you, you stick to it. Um, talked about teamwork, um, helping now, each other Now, was out. Coach Koontz also military or? Yeah, he was a former Marine. Okay. Yep. So he was, said he had served four years in the Marine Corps. So I got to learn more about the Marine Corps from him not by his words, but by his actions. I mean, just watching him and observing him and the way he carried himself. Um, he was well-respected throughout the community. Um, just a good man to be around. He's a good mentor as, as, a, as a high school youth. Um, and like he really cared. Like You can genuinely care that he cared about you. You just weren't an athlete. You were a, a person. And if he made a commitment to you, then like you knew that he you had his support no matter what. So, so it's a good thing for a young young person's life, man, woman, whatever is to have that kind of influence. Yeah, I agree. it sounds like also your your path to the Marine Corps was pretty much being laid brick by brick, and yeah. that's where you were headed. weren't Yeah, I would yes. definitely say that. So in so if you fast forward another year or so to fifth grade, or fifth grade, fifth period. <laughs> so senior year, fifth period, I had English. And a guy by the name of Vernon turned around to me. He was right before lunch. Um, he said, what are you doing after school today? And I said, uh, nothing. He's like, why don't you go talk to the Marine Corps recruiter with me? I'm like, oh, man, Vernon, like, is looking out for me. Like, you know, we played football together, and we hung out. I'm like, well, it turns out Vernon was just looking to get promoted because, you know, if <laughs> so if you get two people to enlist under your name, you get a promotion right out of boot camp. So I yeah. just kind of joke around that Vernon. You know, Vernon was looking out for me, you know. He, <laughs> Enlightened self-interest. Yes. His self-interest <laughs> so led him to you and helped correct. you out. Yeah. So I went and talked to the recruiter. Um, I even remember the building. The building's been – I don't know if it's been demolished, but it was called the Scott McDaniels Building. It was a small building in the south part of Martinsville, and that's where the recruiting offices were were in. So we met the recruiter. Um, you know, he was wearing his um, one of his service uniforms, and I'm like, man, that's sharp. He wasn't in the full <laughs> dress blues. He was in the the khaki shirt with the dress blue trousers, and um, so. And I'm like, wow. Your that, eyes were wide, huh? Yeah, I'm yeah. like, that's pretty impressive. Um, thin built, just looked like he was just physically fit. Um, 
just very impressive the way he talked. So we talked, and then I walked away going, I know this is what I want to do. I was 17, so I had to go home and talk to my parents. Because when you're 17, what your parents signed for is for you to go up, allow you to get the physical. It doesn't, you make the choice to enlist. The paperwork allows you to go up and get the physical. So it's a little bit different. You know, some people think your parents signed for you to join them. No, they give you permission to get the physical done and do the process. You as a human being make the decision to raise your right hand. Mm-hmm. Take the oath. Yeah. Yep. So, so we, what year are we in here approximately? So this would be 19, this is February of 1990. Okay. So, so I went home and told my parents that, hey, I, I want to join the Marine Corps. And they weren't really surprised. So <laughs> they agreed to meet with the recruiter on um, that next day, Tuesday. And then they... You know, the recruiter talked to him and everything, and I think, like I said, they, they kind of already knew that's the path I was going to go. So Thursday of that week, um, the recruiter met me outside the flagpole, um, and so this time he's in his full dress blues. So I walk out of the school because he's getting ready to take me to MEPS to do my physical, to take do the ASFAB that night and the next day do the physical and the enlistment process. And I'm walking out. Yeah, I walk out to the high school doors and there's this Marine in dress blue standing at the flagpole. And like my chest is like sticking out, shoulders are back. Like like that's that he's here he's here for me. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to shout, like, see that dude right there? Yeah, he's here to pick me up. So it's like a Lamborghini was waiting for you outside or, you know, some professional athlete is here to meet you and like, no, this that Marine right there, the guy in dress blues, yeah, he's he's picking me up. Yeah. yeah. So it was pretty a very proud moment. He picks me up, takes me to Indianapolis. I do the the ASFAB that night, um, and then the next morning we do the physical and stuff. And um, I end up enlisting for six years for my first enlistment. So my job. Were that you I, pretty sure at the beginning that you were going to be a lifer, or I mean, you make the six year commitment already? Yeah, I made the six year commitment because the. So I joined a very technical job, so it was an automatic five-year enlistment. But then the when you're sitting up there with um, the people that process all your stuff, is you know the Marines that are up there, like it's five-year enlistment. But if you go six, then you're an automatically an E2 out of boot camp. Hmm. Oh, sign me up! Yeah, I'll take the extra year. So yeah. little so, rank boost. Yeah, yeah. So that's why uh, uh, there's no bonus. It was just. And a chance to be promoted out of boot camp for another year. Yeah, I'll take it. So, said I was 17, and it just I just knew that what's the difference between five or six years at the time. So, so yeah, I made the six year commitment. Um, so I enlisted on Valentine's Day of 1990 is the day that I enlisted on, and then um, boot camp at Ellis Island, right? No, uh, San Diego. San Diego. Yeah. So the way it works is if you are so if so for example i was in normally the way it works if you live west of the mississippi you go to boot camp in marine corps recruit depot san diego if you live east of the mississippi you go to paris island paris island but it's actually by headquarters so um it, i went to recruiting station in annapolis which falls under the ninth marine corps district and their headquarters at the time was in kansas city so since the senior headquarters was west of the Mississippi, I went to to San Diego. 
and that's how it works. So what was that first day of boot camp like? What uh, did you think? Were you, was it all you thought it would be, or were you kind of shocked, shell shocked? What was the, what was that feeling that when you rolled up? Well, I have to give credit to to the recruiter. Uh, my recruiter that recruited me ended up leaving, uh, just because his tour of recruiting duty was up. So the the next recruiter came in. And we would have monthly meetings in his office, and you know he did. He talked to us about boot camp, showed us videos, you know, like the prep videos, and he didn't like tell us anything untrue. He made boot camp sound harder than what it would be because he wanted us to be prepared. So when you watch the videos of, you know, that bus pulls up in the middle of the night, or at least it's dark, <laughs> and that drone that. The bus driver opens the door, and that drill instructor, you, know, you are now aboard Marine Corps Recruit Group, both San Diego, California. The first and last words out of your mouth would be, sir, do you understand me? And you say, yes, sir. And he he said, do you understand me? Yes, sir. And he's like, when I give you the word to get off this bus, you're going to get off this bus. You're going to find yellow footprints. Like, that is, like, 100% real. Like, boot camp for the Marine Corps has not changed. Um I mean, it was that way in 1990, and I can guarantee you that in 2020, the process is the exact same. And that's one of the reasons why the Marine Corps is so successful is because if it's not broke, then why fix it? Yeah, right? why fix it or why change it? So, but it's still watching it on video and doing it is two different things. So, yeah, you are in shell shock, and you are like, oh my, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> you start kind of, do you still? question yourself a little bit um but then you were lucky my recruiter was uh, not so generous to actually give me the truth he kind of <laughs> em- well he didn't embellish anything he just didn't talk about it he said <laughs> i think you'll be all right gotcha. <laughs> but i had the same experience rode up on the bus and you get out there yelling at you and do this put your bags there you know all of that so it was it's quite a an experience we'll put gotcha. it that way but yeah I, you were a little better prepared maybe yeah i think um he did a good job, I think. Like, I have to give him credit. Like, he, everything that, even though doing it is harder than hearing about it, he mentally prepped us to expect, you know, no, like nothing was came out of the blue that I wasn't expecting, if that makes sense. Like, you know, he's like, you're going to yell at you. You're going to do a lot of push-ups. You're going to get punished. Punished as in, like. Regardless, yeah, of what yeah. you do, right, yep. wrong, it doesn't matter. Something's going to. Yep. Come down on your head, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, he prepped us for for everything I think that he could um, to get us ready. Then after that, it's your mental fortitude. You know, either you have what it takes to make it through boot camp or you don't. You know, unfortunately, there's some kids that just don't have they, – they can't dig down deep enough, for lack of better words, to, to complete boot camp, whether or not that's maybe some buried issue from their past or – or whatever, you know. Some and also maybe some it. people go into the military with the wrong, uh, not, I don't want to say wrong, but maybe um, not fully understanding what they're about to step into. Maybe they've made a, a quick decision and the recruiter goes ahead and signs them up and gets them in there. Whereas your story so far sounds like you were definitely on the path for probably years. You were already studying, yeah. you kind of knew that. And then by the time you got there, you were your your mind was in the right place to go there and do what you were going to do. He definitely knew what he was getting yes, into. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which yeah. comes into play later in my Marine Corps career. Because yeah, so let's fast forward a little yeah. bit. So you obviously made it through boot camp. Yep. You did all right. Um, you go to, I don't know how the Marine Corps set up. Do you, 
uh, Air Force, we had a technical school. So after your boot yeah. camp, you go get your training. and Yeah, so after, since Marine Corps boot camp is quite lengthy, you go home for 10 days of, of leave. Um, it's a good way also that the Marine Corps helps recruiting because, you know. The Marine Corps boot camp for our listeners is 13 weeks. That's correct. Right. So that's standard Army, uh, Navy is eight weeks, I believe, right? I believe you're correct. Eight yeah. or nine weeks, somewhere in there. Yep. So we, um, so they send you home. Um, it's a good, and obviously, since you're so proud that you're you're wearing your uniform a lot, so you're garnering a lot of. Te- you're going back and visiting your high school teachers, friends, and they see a change in you, and a lot of times it triggers something in them that makes them want to make that change. So it gives. It's a good way for the Marine Corps to find you know other applicants, um, generate interest within the community. Um, you know, and it's a, you know, every time they send somebody home, it's a success story for the Marine Corps, you know, especially if you have, you know, somebody, you have the kid that nobody thought would make it. And then he comes home a Marine mm. like, wow. Yeah. That's a pretty good success story. So, um, so, I can attest to that. I had okay. friends that came back, um, uh, similar situations and yeah, there was a change. It wasn't just the uniform either. It was obviously them internally. Yeah. Uh, not only physically you saw a difference, but their mental ad- attitude, all of it was, they were different people uh, and seemed like in a better place. Yeah, I think for the most part, like everybody, you know, walks away from no matter what branch of service you go to, like the boot camp just helps refocus you. Um, it teaches you a set of values that maybe you never had before, or it emphasizes a set of values you've already had. But I think it definitely steers a lot of people in the right direction. So after uh, boot camp, um, so at the Marine Corps, if you're not in an infantry MOS or Marine or military occupational specialty MOS, you go to um, what's called MCT, Marine Combat Training, which is about a month. It teaches further um, combat skills. And then from there, then you go to your technical school or your MOS school. Uh, for me, I went to Millington, Tennessee. I was there for about eight months. Um, and then... I graduated. So what was your uh, specialty again? So when I first was in, I was avionics and weapons technician on a Huey and Cobra, two different types of Marine Corps helicopters. So I go so to the m- primary in the, the Marine Corps. Um, I know that some people will um, recognize that the, the Marines were attached to the Navy, I think, in the beginning. Is that correct? They still are. So the Marine Corps is actually a department of the Navy. Okay. And then the aviation side of it is primarily uh, helicopters. Yep. Well, they Marine Corps has F-18s okay. as well. And, well, they did when I left, when I retired. Now I think they, they're they up to the F-35. I think that's the <laughs> new airframe that they're using. So when I left the Marine Corps, so the Marine Corps has um, four different types of helicopters. You have a CH-53, which is heavy lift capacity capacity and personnel transport, the CH-46, which is medium, like, capacity. Um, And then you have the Cobra, which is an attack helicopter, and Huey, which is a multi-purpose, you know, the old classic Huey from Vietnam. It's a gunship slash small troop transport. Um, They had the Harrier at the time, Mm. so the single-engine aircraft that, you know, vertical, vertical lift and... And F-18s, um, C-130s as well. The Marine Does Corps. the Harrier still exist, or do you know? Uh, I I don't know that it's been – I retired eight years ago, <laughs> so I'm not really sure if the Harrier's Have in Have you existence. seen a Harrier 
I have Garrett. not. Uh, also to our listeners, check that out if you haven't. I, I had the privilege to see one when I was young. It's a, it's a, a fighter aircraft, correct, that can do a vertical takeoff. Yep. So it can flip its wings, lift itself up, and then take off and then retract those wings and yeah. yes. no, something straight out of a sci-fi. Yes, that sounds so cool. Yeah. So it has what's called narcells. It's it's like where the engine out. So it looks like so it actually the wings it's the narcells underneath the wings that rotate mm-hmm. and cause the aircraft to take off. So the engine is for the it, the Harry is just an interesting aircraft. The the British used it a lot. Um but it's if you've never seen one, then check it out because the engine is made by Rolls Royce, mm-hmm. and they have to remove the whole wing assembly to take the engine out. It, it's just one big engine, and it's the only actually aircraft in the Navy and Marine Corps inventory that's single engine, because everything else in the Navy Marine Corps has two engines since they fly over water like dual redundancy. Yeah. Unless something's changed. But at the time when I was in, that was the only aircraft that the Navy and Marine Corps used that had single engine capability. Yeah, definitely check that out. Garrett and listeners, check it out. Go to do a YouTube search. I'm sure there's plenty of video yeah. of that, but it's very yeah. cool. Something you should see. So, so, so oh, go ahead, Garrett. So, uh, so after your uh, training school, what happened after that? So after that school, then I went to Camp Pendleton. So when I went to Millington, Tennessee, that was to learn basic electronics. And then the Marine Corps says, okay, out of all these students that are graduating the basic electronics course, these are going to go work on F-18s, these are going to work on Harriers, these are going to work on these helicopters. So I got designated uh, Hueys and Cobras. So I went to Camp Pendleton, California, and I went to another school for four months to learn the actual avionics and electronic systems on those aircraft. And then once I finished that school, then I went out to what's called the Fleet Marine Force so the Fleet Marine Force is basically any Marine that's not in any kind of training status. You're in a unit that could be deployed at any time. Um, and where was that at again? So that was at Camp Pendleton, California. Okay. And that's where I spent the rest of my first enlistment was at Camp Pendleton. That was about to be the next question. What was your first active duty station after you'd completed your training? But it sounds like you were at Camp Pendleton. Yep. So okay. I was there for six years, uh, or I finished my six-year enlistment, um, I knew that the Marine Corps was definitely for me, probably within a few years of being in. Um, so when my six years was up, I re-enlisted for another four. Um, and then I became an instructor. So I taught at that school. Um, so when the new Marines came to me, now from Pensacola, because Millington, Tennessee had closed, um, and they moved all those aviation schools to Pensacola, so once, so I would get the students that were designated Hueys and Cobras, and then we would teach them the those systems. Then they would go out to the fleet and work. Then really, then after that enlistment, um, I went on Marine Corps recruiting duty for three years. So and that duty station, so that school was down in San Diego. Um, pretty lengthy school. They teach you about cells techniques and really talk to you about Marine Corps programs and um, they really talk to you about like I won't say it's a sales pitch at all but they talk to you about talking to young men and young women like finding out what's the need behind the need Mm -hmm. like how what are your goals in life and these are how the Marine Corps this is how the Marine Corps can help you achieve those goals so when I interview a young man on recruiting duty or young lady I'm really trying to find out about what do you really want in life 
and how can the Marine Corps help you find what you're looking for? It kind of reminds me of uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Ken Schuler. Uh, he kind of had a similar story uh, where whenever he was in the Air Force, he actually helped uh, stu- uh, helped uh, airmen find out what they want to do after they get out of the Air Force. But it kind of... Kind of a transition program yeah. with, with Ken. Yeah. And gotcha. for you, though, you kind of wanted to find out how the... Um, Marines could help them get to that point. Yep. And you do a lot of stuff with those young men and young ladies. So once they, once, so you basically talk to them. So for example, a typical day for a recruiter for the Marine Corps consists of a lot of communication, communicating via telephone in schools. I actually got myself, since I was an instructor on aircraft, I had a different technique. I got my Indiana State teaching substitute teaching license when I got on recruiting duty. So I became a licensed substitute teacher. <laughs> so I was a substitute teacher at uh, my office. I had 12 different high schools, but I primarily substituted at Scottsburg High School because it was the high school that was in my town that my office was in. And it turned out that um, I substituted at first, it was a study hall because the, the gentleman that ran the study hall had to have dialysis like every Thursday. or so He had to have a medical procedure every Thursday, so he wasn't in. So for a whole year, I substituted every Thursday at Scottsburg High School, the study hall, in uniform. How many uh, Scottsburg seniors went into the Marine Corps? So that year, <laughs> s- seven did. So I recruited... Uh, there's a great foot in the door there. How did the uh, Marine Corps view that? When you substituted, were you still, was, was that a duty day or how did they? Yeah, so I went in uniform. Mm-hmm. So the job of a Marine Corps recruiter is to be, to work with your high schools. Yeah. They weren't sure of my approach at first because they're like, you did what? I think that's pretty genius. So, <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, the command's like, you did what? Like, are you, how'd you do that? And so I explained the process. Um, so it turned out to be great because it, it gave me a close tie to that high school. So I recruited seven young men that year from that high school, the senior class president, the National Honor Society president, the high school, because that school was smaller. They have a football team, but the, high, the all-star wrestler whose mom is the head guidance counselor. Like, so that year um, like was huge out of that high school. I think it's brilliant because you're not just showing up as a recruiter. You're showing up as a substitute, you're there, you become a familiar face, and then people can approach you. Um, I'm sure, from my experience, if you saw the recruiter, they came in for the day, maybe twice a year, yeah. and it was a certain amount of time, and you went or you didn't. And But with your uh, situation, you're there sitting in study hall. <laughs> yeah, sure. I can just imagine, because I remember study hall f- from my time, and you know, just going up to say, hey, can I go to the bathroom? You know, simple things like that. And eventually you're going to get to know that person. Yeah, so, so it know. was pretty cool. Brilliant technique. That should be in in the, the recruiting handbook or right. something. Yeah, it really worked <laughs> because what, um, you know, as a study hall, they, they just wanted you to keep a low roar, keep mm-hmm. it quiet. Yeah. So every Thursdays turned into a, a talk about the Marine Corps <laughs> because I was a, it was like, hey, what did you, what did you do in, in this country or what was it like? So every, and they just, study halls are boring if you know most of them are just talking or so and every thursday i gave like a marine corps a career talk <laughs> is what we would call it, a career talk and we talk about the marine corps well that branch that um created 
more so before I knew it. Um, I was covering, they have always asked to speak during some of the history classes. So when they would cover, get to World War II, I talk about kind of what the Marine Corps did in World War II um, or Vietnam. I actually, then I got to meet some veterans in the community, um, older veterans. And and where are we at again here? What what community so, are you in? So this is Scottsburg, Indiana. Indiana. It's a, right. about a small town. It's a small country town. Um, about 30 miles north of Louisville, Kentucky. And you're about midway through your career now, right? I'm right at the 11-year mark. 11 years. So, yeah, I was on recruiting from 2001 to 2004. So I got to meet some great people. Um, so I'd meet a lot of Marine Corps veterans, um, Korean Vietnam veterans. So I'd have them come to the school, and they would give a talk about what they did during those camp during history. Then I was... T- covering I was doing PT classes so <laughs> I mean to this day so I left when I went to Warrensburg was 19 years ago and those I saw kids but so how many total do you think that you recruited from that high school uh, I'm not sure how many total from the high school but on my my time in the Marine Corps I, I recruited I sent 66 young men to boot camp and 63 graduated um, what so, would uh, could you have a standard that you could compare that to? What would what do other recruiters do? Not that we're trying to compare, but <laughs> yeah. I would say the attrition rate is a lot higher than what mine was. Mm. So, so like, a, meaning by that you mean a lot of them maybe uh, sign up to go to boot camp but don't make it through. That's correct. Okay. Yep. So a lot of them, unfortunately, sometimes it's just a. I, I just think that the more that a recruiter can work with a young man or young lady before they go, the more the higher chance of them succeeding in boot camp. Yeah, be, like be just, up front with them. Yeah, just like I said, like my recruiter thoroughly prepped me. So I did the same thing for my young men. And I didn't. I don't say young ladies, so I only recruited a couple young ladies, but I left recruiting field before it was time for them to ship to boot camp. So, But out of the 66 young men that I shipped to boot camp that I recruited, 63 graduated. And I could tell you exactly why the, the three didn't make it, and it's – it's no really fault to their own. They just had some circumstances that caused them to not, you know, just push through mentally. But yeah, one was actually a physical problem. He's the shortest man I ever recruited, and he got heat stroke during a hike, and then or heat exhaustion. And then the next time he tried to hike, he got heat stroke, so mm-hmm. he was sent home. Yeah, and I've heard once you do that, it's hard to come back. You're going to continue that yep. with the heat stroke. So, so you're midway through your career. I know we're kind of pressed for time. I'm going to keep us moving. Um, so midway career, you have done your training. You are an instructor. You've went on to become a recruiter. Uh, what's your so what's at, your next step in the the Marine Corps? So after recruiting, I got sent back to that same school I came from as an instructor to be in charge. Yeah. Mm. So I was in charge of the instructors. I was only there for about two years, um, and then I I got to a helicopter squadron. And right before I was supposed to deploy, I got... So we're, pro- we're right around 2000 now, right? We're September 11 has not happened yet. Am I correct? Yeah, that happened when I was on recruiting duty. Okay. So so now we're talking 2008. Mm. So 2008, I, I'm in a helicopter squadron getting ready to go overseas. And then... Where are they shipping you to? Uh, we're just doing a normal deployment um, somewhere in the Middle East. And then I get promoted to my last rank, first sergeant, and then I get sent to the infantry, which is like a dream come true because 
Um, I wanted to see every aspect of the Marine Corps I could. And then when I got promoted to first sergeant, it allowed me, the Marine Corps sent me to 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines as an infantry uh, unit on the northern part of Camp Pendleton. Um, and then shortly thereafter, we started our process to go overseas. So I did a few deployments with 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines with the infantry. It's probably my favorite time ever in the Marine Corps was being around the infantry because the Marine Corps infantry is where the rubber meets the road. Every MOS outside the infantry in the Marine Corps supports the infantry. You know, aviation supports the infantry, like military, um, motor transport supports the infantry. Like Yeah, the primary mission is to yes, is, what the infantry does. Yeah, so Marine Corps infantry is the largest occupational, especially in the Marine Corps. So to be around those Marines, I mean, it was phenomenal. Like that two, little over two years I spent with them, it was just amazing. Now, where were you stationed? You were stationed back at the... I was stationed at, on Camp Pendleton again. Okay. So I spent, with the exception of recruiting duty, and my last year coming up at Fort Leonard Wood, I spent my whole career on Camp Pendleton. It's just the luck of the draw. And you deployed how many times did uh, you? When I was in early, several times earlier in my career, and then um, twice with 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. And then, so after my second deployment with um, the infantry, um, the Marine Corps tries to take you out of the fight, so to speak, or give you a break. So they're like, okay, you, you have to go somewhere non-deployable. Um, and so they, the Marine Corps gave me some options. <laughs> they're like, you can go here, there, which were like reserve units somewhere in the Midwest. One was in Maryland or Fort Leonard Wood. I'm like, I had no idea even what Fort Leonard Wood was. <laughs> They're like, it's an Army base in Missouri. Kind of close to Indiana. Yeah, so I'm like, what the hell is Fort Leonard Wood? So it turns <laughs> out Fort Leonard Wood is actually the largest detachment of Marines outside of a Marine Corps base. Mm. So the second largest military occupational, especially in the Marine Corps, is motor transport. And the motor transport school is at Fort Leonard Wood. Um, so is construction engineers. So like you're... Um, heavy equipment operators are out of, um, they go to school at Fort Leonard Wood, military police, and what's now known as Seaburn, chemical, biological, radio, nucleological, MOS, or Dewey and I are probably know it better as NBC, nuclear, mm -hmm. biological, chemical. So those Marines go to school down there. So I got sent down there. I was the company first sergeant for, um, I started out with the engineer company, and then got moved to the motor transport company, and then multiple times I served as the the acting sergeant major for the colonel because our sergeant major did did some traveling um, due to his duties. So, so you're finishing out your career at Fort Leonard Wood. That's correct. Um, when did you have time to meet your wife here, or did you? Have so I actually met her before I went to boot camp. Oh, so high school sweethearts. Right, we met actually right after high school. Okay, so. Yeah, so we met right after high school. Um, she worked at that small town grocery store I talked about. <laughs> um, I was riding my bicycle as a senior. As a paper boy. Yeah. Watching Rad every day, doing <laughs> tricks on the bike. Uh, yep, because I couldn't afford a car. <laughs> so, but I, bet, I, I bet dates were kind of hard then, huh? They were, but, you know, I was still just being a boy, just enjoying. Because I had already joined the Marine Corps, so... Like, I had nothing to do but just enjoy every moment of life. So, I me, mean, yeah, I was a senior riding a bicycle, 
Like, <laughs> but I was in no rush to grow up. I had some good mentors that said, look, you're going to grow up and then you're, sometimes you're going to realize that it sucks. So just enjoy. You say, you're going to boot camp, just have fun. Like, so I worked with my dad. My dad was a window um, and door installer. So when I graduated, because I left for boot camp in November. So I had between Ju- May, late May, early June of graduation to November. So I worked with my dad a little bit for some spending money, also to spend some time with him. And then I was on my bike, goofing off, like just having fun. Just because, doing tricks and stuff. Yeah, just <laughs> out having fun. Because so did you get married before boot camp after, or was it um, somewhere later? Or? It was a little bit later, about a year after we met. Okay. So um, just a like kind of a long-distance relationship, if you will. And then just kind of getting to know each other. And then um, and then she joined me in California when I got stationed out there. So after your time at Fort Leonard Wood, that was your last, the last place you was before you retired. That's correct. So how did you end up here at U, uh, UCM? So my last year at Fort Leonard Wood, um, I, my goal was to stay in the Marine Corps for 30 years. That was my goal. Yeah, I was in for 22. But that year that I was at Fort Leonard, I didn't deploy. I got to see the kids every day. And my oldest daughter at the time was in sixth grade. And I already missed over two years in a row of her life and the other kids' lives. And I knew that if I stayed in for the another eight years that I would be missing out a lot more. And I had been enough retirement ceremonies that the common theme was, I want to thank my wife for raising our kids. And I heard that many times. Amen to that, yeah. So I was like, you know what, if I want to watch them grow up, it's 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 time. So so I decided to retire. I actually I enjoyed being in Missouri, so we actually focused the job hunt in Missouri. Um, ended up taking a job at the local Lowe's home improvement store up here. I was the um, the human resources manager for the local store up here. Here in Warrensburg? Here in Warrensburg, okay. yep. So I had the opportunity to interview for and take the Spring, the North Springfield Low store, but we drove up here and we checked out the local area, um, checked out Kansas City, um, well, really at least some independence, just kind of drove around, and like, hey, that's pretty close, because at Fort Leonard Wood, you're an hour and a half away from Springfield or two from St. Louis, so... Like, if you want to go somewhere other than a Walmart or a Goodies, like, you're driving for a <laughs> while. But, you know, Lee Summit is, is pretty close, and it has some nice places to go to. And and then, then UCM was here, and that was very appealing. So we ended up choosing – I chose to take the, the interview and the position up here at the Warrensburg Low Store. Um, I, was at the, I was there for seven years. So in the meantime um, – you know, I was just doing my thing at the the local store, um, you know, working with talking to veterans and stuff because Lowe's is a veteran-friendly company. Um, they do a lot of stuff for veterans and a lot of hiring with veterans. And then just unfortunately due to corporate structure changes, they eliminated the HR role from their stores. Um, they decided to go with more of a online model. And so it put me on the job hunt. And about the time I was looking for a job, um, the Military Veterans Center um, was looking for a director. So I, uh, I applied. I knew about the position, 
or about the office because I used to take my job postings as HR manager and drop them off at my office because I knew that um, Lowe's is veteran friendly. We were looking for part-time veterans, so I drop off postings. So I knew about the office and I knew the purpose of the office. So when the when the job came open, I'm like, well, you already had your foot in the door. Yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer. Like it would be a good fit. So um, I interviewed last July. And actually last June, sorry, and then started uh, July 1st. My last day at Lowe's was July 13th. So I took vacation days <laughs> my last week and a half at Lowe's so I could start here on time. And then, um, but it it was a good opportunity. It was a good chance to part of higher ed. Because before, uh, when I was at Fort Leonard Wood, I was adjunct faculty for Columbia College in Central Texas. So, and I actually was adjunct faculty for Central Texas on a ship. So I used to facilitate classes for my Marines. Like we'd be in the middle of the Indian Ocean and I'd facilitate classes for Central Texas for my Marines. So as a adjunct faculty. So I was already familiar with higher ed, at least from the faculty standpoint. So it was just a little different being on the administrative side now. Sounds like the, sounds like it was almost made for you the position yeah it was a good transition for sure um you know i got to meet some really some pretty cool veterans um and you know there's a lot of great veterans that come to the center so give me a chance to meet them you know that's how obviously do and i got to meet um we worked together in that office and it was just a good experience um you know just working with him and getting to know him as a person and and all the stuff that you know, we can just kind of joke about because we both have obviously long hair and beards. <laughs> and so we, we don't even look anywhere close to what we did when we served. But I tell everyone that Kelly's copying my look. <laughs> <laughs> but he has more clout now because of his uh, his fame on CBS. So, so. I can't use that anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that's actually a great transition. So yeah. speaking of uh, CBS, so... You recently uh, was on Tough as Nails. Uh, you walked away a champion, which is a huge deal. But going all the way back to the beginning on Tough as Nails, how did you even get started with that process? Right. So when I retired from the Marine Corps, I, I've always – so I've done functional fitness. You know, it's a lot of people know it as CrossFit, but I, I, don't work, I don't go to a CrossFit gym now, but we still do the same thing. I, I competed a lot. Um, so I had, uh, an apparel company reach out to me shortly after I retired and said, Hey, we're going to throw you these, these t-shirts, these shorts to wear, just wear them when you're working out and post your videos to social media. I'm like, what kind of social media are you talking about? They're like, well, how about Instagram? I'm like, okay. So I started an Instagram account just because it was a fun thing to do. It was a good way to just, to, you know, get free gear, wear it. And it was just kind of a fun thing to do, like a little hobby, I guess. You can post videos, training and stuff. Well, um, my Instagram account just kind of, you know, you start gaining a little bit more, a few followers here and there. And then out of the blue, um, last January, a gentleman sent me a message and said, hey, I'm from the Discovery Channel. I think you'd be a good fit for a show that we're putting together. I'm like, yeah, right, whatever. I, I thought it was a joke. Um, I didn't think I'm serious. He's like, no, I'm serious. My name's Jonathan. Here's my info. Look me up. Um, 
So I looked him up. I'm like, oh, damn, he's a real casting producer. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'll, let's talk. So he said, hey, this is what we're doing. We're putting together this show. I'm, I'm casting for it. Um, so I did a Zoom, some Zoom stuff with them. And unfortunately, the show just never kind of got off the ground. But I walked away um, last January going, well, that was a cool experience. I never casted for a Hollywood TV show. So um, I just walked away going, well, that was neat kind of fun thing to do good experience and then out of the blue last october jonathan reached out to me said hey murph like cbs is doing this show you like this is made for you you need to you need to apply he said i already kind of let them know about you here's the link so he sent me the link it took me like 30 seconds to fill it out Um, the next day um, gabriel from cbs casting sent me a message hey kelly can you zoom tomorrow I'm like, sure. So I did a Zoom interview with Gabriel. Um, it lasted like 45 minutes just getting to know me, talking and stuff, asked me some questions. And then about three days later, he said, hey, CBS loved it. Can you Zoom again? So I'm like, okay. So I did another Zoom. This time it was with the host of the show, Phil, uh, his wife, the other producers. Um, it lasted like not even two minutes. And I didn't even know who Phil was at the time. Phil Kogan, because I, I don't really, I don't watch TV, let alone reality TV. So I didn't know who he was until. Yeah. So for those of you listening that did watch the show, Phil Kogan was, he, he'd also done Amazing Race. That's correct. Right. And yep. another show maybe or two. He's done The Amazing Race for the last 20 years. Mm. So he's, I think they're on episode or season 33 of The Amazing Race now. Mm. So he, uh, it was, the Zoom call was with them. And it lasts like if it was two minutes, then I'd be amazed. And so when it was over, I'm like, well, that was a great experience. Like two minutes, I guess. <laughs> well, okay, we'll chalk it up as another good experience. Kind of leaves you wondering, yeah, because yeah. it's so short. Was, yeah. Did that go well or not? You're yeah. not sure what to think. It's like a job interview that goes really quick. You walk mm-hmm. away going, oh my gosh, what did I blow? Did I blow it or <laughs> was it that good? And then um, another few weeks went by. Hey, a couple, couple weeks, and then they like, hey, we're we'd like to fly you out in December um, for the casting process. So I got the invitation. I flew out to California um, last December um, for about a week, where we did the casting, like physical, um, some mental testing stuff, some on camera, on camera interview, um, a chance to learn a little bit more about the show, and a chance for them to to learn more about you. Um, I flew back in right before the Christmas break and then thought, well, that was a good experience. You know, that was neat. Never done that before. And then right after the new year, um, this the casting director, her name's Jenny. She's an amazing lady. Calls me and says, hey, Murph, we're, we're flying you out to be on the show. I'm like, wow. Yeah, like, yeah, that's, this was like a Monday. She's like, can, can you be out on Sunday? <laughs> Sunday <laughs> for like how how long? She's like, yeah, we need you out for like thirty days. Like, so, all right, well, I have to make some. I have to make some calls and stuff. <laughs> so, I made an appointment with Doctor Best. Um, talked to Doctor Best about the show and and every well, uh, just because you know, I'd only been here for six months, so um, and it, it just didn't. Fit. I had to run it by him, so he understood. He thought it would be a great opportunity. Um, and he said, yeah, by, by all means, go for it. So, uh, And your I, wife and family, of course, too, had to. Yeah. Yeah, they they thought it was kind of cool at first. 
Like, so, but then I talked to my youngest daughter because she's the one that was leaving for Navy boot camp. So I knew that I'd be gone for 30 days, but she thought it was really cool to, she said, yeah, absolutely go do it. So that was the only reason I wasn't going to do the show because I didn't want to be away from the family for the, that 30 days. So. so do you think on that phone call, when they called the other contestants that the other contestants said, well, I, I need to, to, to run some things over and then I'll call you back. Did anybody else make that comment or do you, do uh, you know? Yeah, I don't really know. I, I bet there was a few that had to go to their yeah um, employers. Yeah. And, their their either yeah. their union or mm-hmm. their employer and ask, Hey, I need 30 days off, you know, cause especially cause you're talking, um, you know, blue collar jobs and, you know, those people, everybody that I was on the show with, their job is, they are vital part of their company. You know, for example, Danny, um, you know, he's an independent drywaller. So if Danny's not working, his family doesn't make money, you know, so, you know, and everybody that was on the show is like the breadwinner for their family. So, you know, being gone for 30 days is a, is a huge commitment. So, so when did you all film the show? So we filmed mid-January. I think we started, I think we got there on the 15th. And then we, the last day of filming was February 14th. And then I flew back to, to Missouri on the 16th. So did you film Monday through Friday, weekends off? How did that work? Was it every day or? Yep. So the first several days we were out there was almost like getting a new job. HR mm-hmm. classes, learning about insurance, a little bit of insurance, just some paperwork because you, we fell under CBS insurance and, and, you know, so we had some HR classes that, you know, just talked about just your normal HR stuff. Um, some clothes fitting for the Carhartt gear we wore, um, some interview processes. So we got there on a Sunday night. Um, our first day of filming was on that Friday. That was where we filmed episode one. And then, that was to the episode one was to to determine what the teams were going to be. Then we had that Saturday off, and then then we started the next three weeks of film Sunday through Friday. Saturdays would be off for like a Walmart run for groceries, do your laundry, mm-hmm. uh, maybe hit the hotel gym and get some rest. So we would film a team. Um, we would film the team part of that episode on a Sunday. Monday would be individual. Tuesday would be team. Wednesday individual. Thursday team. Friday individual. So we we filmed three episodes a week on all the way up until the finale, which was a little different. But that's kind of the layout. Is we filmed the three episodes a week. And so you were all put up in a hotel. Did you? communicate outside of the shoot or did you just kind of keep to yourselves or was there any guidance on that was that just left up to you well when we got there that sunday night we turned in our cell phone and all our computers so we had no communication with anybody back home um the we were an extended stay hotel in burbank california which is north of la and even the phone in your room you could only call the front desk or 911 so there was no communication outside um and it was just to keep the, you know, the... Spo- so no spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. Um, you know, because CBS is, is investing a lot of money. Yes. So we had, you know, um, non-disclosure agreements and confidenti- confidentiality agreements and things of that nature um, because they didn't want, 
you don't want the show to get ruined by right. somebody yes. letting Was the there any communication in. between you and other contestants? Like on your days off, were you doing laundry together or yep. anything so like that? So we were doing, like, we would make, so when we'd go to Walmart, we, we always had to go as a group, and we went with the talent people from CBS. Um, but we just weren't supposed to really talk about the show. Mm. Um, because all, everything that we talked about on the show wanted to be on camera. So it would be fresh and not rehashed yes. because we had no script. Mm -hmm. um, Phil just said, be yourselves and, you know, let's try to catch everything on camera. But we could talk about small stuff, you know. We could talk about sports, um, talk about families or, you know, stuff like that. But any kind of things, we, 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 weren't, we didn't talk about the challenges off camera because we wanted all that to be on camera. So. Yeah. So speaking of the other contestants, uh, did you like form uh, friendships with those and have you continued them after the show wrapped up? My, so Savage Crew, my team, or our team, I should say, in the military, everything's possessive, you know, everything's mine. <laughs> so, so Savage Crew, we have a group chat and we message each other probably several times a week to the still. To the, still. Um, we, give each other individual shout outs or stuff like that. But yeah, even to this day. So, you know, we, the last time we saw each other was the 16th of February. And then of course we saw each other on TV. Um, the finale was September the 2nd, I believe it was. And so to this day, all of us still communicate um, from Savage Crew. And I, I have some individual communication with some of the other team as well. But we're all friends on Instagram, um, and multiple times, you know, we're we're just kind of shouting each other out or talking or posting jokes and stuff like that. So, it, actually, we did meet. I, what I felt like were some really solid friends, some lifelong. And my team is more like family now. Like the ladies on my team are like sisters I've never had. It's pretty. <laughs> I wouldn't. I never went to the show thinking that I these kind of relationships could be established in that short amount of time. But that's why the show reminded me of the military a lot because, you know, like Dewey knows for sometimes you get sent to a unit that's getting ready to deploy or to accomplish a mission and you have to get to know a group of people in a short amount of time um, to get the job done. And that's the way the show was. The show put for us, you know, six people on a team, you had to get to know five other individuals how to work with them, how to communicate with them, how to overcome differences to get the job done. And that's kind of what why the show reminded me of the military. It was actually quite refreshing to do the show because I had missed the Marine Corps so much in the eight years that I had retired that the show, really, I had no idea what the prize money was or what the prizes were, but I knew it was a chance for me to kind of prove to myself that I could still bring it like I did in the Marine Corps, not only physically but mentally. And it took me further down that road than I thought it would be because it also not only was I you know competing that way but I was communicating and overcoming obstacles with people just like you do in the military yeah the team building again yes. the team building and the uh, relationship building and all of that that you're you're all going through not necessarily traumatic experience but you're going through a very unique experience yep. together and the better you can work together the more likely you're going to succeed. Yes. Yeah. And I think the reason, and it's proof that it can happen because if, if it was fake or false, we wouldn't still be friends and still talk. Mm. Like we, 
we learned about each other and have a genuine caring concern for each other. So that's why it's such a, I would have never thought like this would happen. Yeah. Like to do this show and walk away with five brand new friends, or I say more than that, because I'm friends with the other team as well. But you know, but my team and I, we overcame a lot. You know, those of you that watch the show, we we came out the bat, the out of the gate swinging. We won the first challenge, and we lost like four in a row. We started doubting each other, doubting ourselves. Um, you know, not getting along, and then through I think a lot of patience with each other, a lot of understanding. Um, you know, a genuine care and concern for each other. We started learning how to communicate better, learn how to work as a team, and then we made a, an amazing comeback. And so people ask, that's got to be fake. Like, no, it's 100% real. Everything that people saw on the show was real. And that's the best thing about the show was like nothing's, nothing's fake. And that's why I'm looking forward to season two, which they're actually day, they're filming day four today of season two so date or season two is confirmed it's confirmed will there be any type of um like in past shows survivor and that they sometimes bring back the contestants to do uh just a reunion is there any talks of that well, maybe I've, a little bit early now but. I've, I've heard that there there's quite possibly an all-stars in the future <laughs> so. so stay in shape yep so i gotta make sure that i stay mentally and physically ready so um, I heard that I might be invited back if we have an all-stars. So, <laughs> But it was an amazing experience. Like, I don't regret a single bit of, of doing the show. Like, so what was one of your favorite challenges on the show to do? So my favorite episode, period, is the moving challenge. And so what happened, like I said, we started off really well. We won the first team. Then we lost four in a row. And then... When we lost the fourth one, we were very close to winning. We just had some more communication issues with, with you know, as a group. We had a very heartfelt talk. Um, part of that is captured at the end of the oil barrel challenge. You'll see me talking to Michelle and Michelle talking to us. And um, that was the last time we had any issues. The moving challenge was right after that one. So... You know, we had lost four in a row. Um, we woke up that morning and we got in the van together. And I think collectively we, we, we knew that today was our day. Make or break. Yep. So uh, Phil told us what the, we showed up to the job site, which is a residential neighborhood north of L.A. Just, I mean, it was a real neighborhood. They rented out two houses that were right next to each other, stuffed with Hollywood furniture, so to speak. Because, um, you know, I had to make sure that all the stuff was the same. Yeah. Um, Phil said your challenge today is to get this stuff from that garage, get it all in that trailer, which was quite small, and then the first team to shut the door wins today's challenge. Um, so when we started the challenge, like our communication was the best it had ever been. Like we were communicating, talking, or maybe not talking, listening um, to whoever the designated leader was for that challenge, which was Tara. Um, and then when the door closed to that trailer for us to be declared the victor, I mean, to this day, watching my teammates hoot, holler, shout, hug each other, <laughs> that is pure emotion. That is real. We did it. We overcame all this stuff together. That's my favorite episode is to watch my team celebrate because that 
that means more than an individual win because that's six people coming together, overcoming yeah. their differences. And so that to me is, that's my favorite episode. So the moving challenge. Is there anything that you could pinpoint during maybe the, the, the conversation that you had beforehand? Or what do, you think, what do you think was the difference maker there? Was it mental? Was it, I think it, was was it a, the pressure that was on you? Or? I think it was a culmination of just getting to know each other. Um, you know, each week we walked away going, okay, you know, um, you know, Murph is, these are his weak points and this is how we can help him or, you know, these are his strong suits. This is how, um, we're going to use him in this way or this, these are Tara's strong suits. So we need to use her better this way. Or, you know, Lynette is a tremendous lady, tremendous leader, um, we need to use her more in the leadership role. So uh, getting to know everybody's strengths and learning how that we can pair somebody's strengths up with my weaknesses, I think just the culmination of getting to know each other and learning that over that the, those few episodes before that is, is really... The hardship was almost kind of a blessing then. It was. It yeah. made us, like I said, the, the hardship is what made us friends today. Mm. So... And being able to openly communicate those yep. things that you, as uh, an outside observer, noticed about your your teammates, and because it's always hard to give a criticism, I think to anybody, it's until you've broken down those uh, defenses and those barriers where they actually want to know what can I do to help us succeed. Yeah, and when they get to that honest place, and they're willing to listen because they know that you're not just criticizing to criticize you're actually expressing things that like hey this will help us and this is what you do and i can do you is that kind of yep. am i right in making that assessment with yes. it yeah absolutely absolutely so what was it like when you won the show uh it was very emotional like because you said i went out there to prove that i can still I say I use the words bring it like I did when I was active duty. So, you know, to to prove to myself that I could still be f like physically do stuff well, mentally. Um, so when so at the very end, when I climbed up the stairs, what I grabbed a lot of people that doesn't know this. So at the top of each set of stairs was a key fob for the truck. So when I got to the top, what I grabbed was the key fob for the truck, and that's what sealed the victory. So when I grabbed the key fob for that F-250, it was just an emotional overload. Like, I was happy that I'd won at the same. I couldn't believe that the journey, because it was th 30 days is a long time. And yeah, six well, days a week of it. You yeah, know. yeah, when you're competing, and the, the days were long. We started the day at zero at 6 a.m., at the hotel we meet for breakfast by 6:40 ish or so we're loading in the vans to go drive to wherever and then depends upon where the location was if it was in la or south of la you're not getting back till like eight o'clock at night or later if it's north of la you're getting back at a decent hour of you know 12 or 13 yeah. hours later but you still have to go to dinner get your clothes ready for the next day get some type of rest so i mean it it's long long days and sometimes a lot of boredom because sometimes you once you finish a challenge you're like you're just kind of sitting around waiting for the next thing especially so if you're it's a individual day so let's say we compete that morning and then 
Um, you do interviews and stuff throughout the day and things of that nature. But if, if you don't go into overtime, then you go to lunch and then you're waiting around for the overtime part to be filmed for, so, and then, you know, some of those overtimes were 45 minutes. Yeah. So what do they do with these? They have like a little area on set that you just go wait like a. Yeah. We just have different, depends upon the locations where we were at, you know, since we're at real locations, every place was just a little bit unique, Mm. but, um, you know, we had like tents and. It felt like a deployment sometimes because you were under like a tent and chairs and taking many naps. So it, <laughs> it felt like being in the middle of the desert sometimes between training events. So um, waiting for your turn to talk on the camera or because you do a lot. Of, I probably did over 100 interviews in that time. Mm-hmm. They call them OTFs on the flies. It's like, hey, let's go OTF. So maybe you get there and they're not ready to shoot yet. So you talk about, hey, where are you at today? Oh, we're at... um. Pick a part. What do you think today's job is going to be? I have no idea. So what do you think about yesterday? So we would talk, you know, so, so much. So to give you an idea of how much filming, let's say, Garrett, let's say they, um, one of your instructors said, hey, I want you to build this birdhouse out of Legos, just a regular standard birdhouse. But your instructor is going to drop off a dump load, a dump truck load of Legos and that's what you had to choose from to build this little bitty birdhouse. So that's how much filming they do to produce for about 40 to 45 minutes of TV. Mm. So there is so much stuff that I said on camera that never made it on camera because they... They edit they, it down they, so much. Yeah, because they have to fit in what they yes. want to fit in. But but that's a good thing, though. Everything that they fit in is, is real. So everything that we said was real and true. It just they may not have used you to narrate a challenge or you to talk but but that's how much filming they did you know so that standard side birdhouse that they want you to build on legos you have now a dump truck (laughs) load of legos to use so so we're getting a little tight on time but i know after you won the episode or won the series i should say sorry about that um you've kind of used the platform to kind of discuss military and veterans issues um, here in Missouri with some political leaders as well as with veterans groups and et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I had the opportunity to, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to, to meet uh, Governor Parsons. So I went up and met the governor, um, met um, senators and representatives, um, got to sit up Um, next to the Speaker of the House for the Senate and the House and watched some legislation going on and and I took my son with me and he got to sit up with me so a different perspective for him like uh, so it was pretty neat just to see that but to also meet some um, some veteran veteran committee members Um, about two weeks ago um, Congresswoman Harsler was in town so she wanted to meet me so she came by my office I had talked to her about some veteran stuff um I have a, more avenues to different veteran organizations now than I ever thought existed. Um, I've worked with CBS, um, Viacom's Veteran Network a little bit, did some blog stuff for them. Beyondtheuniform.org um, did some blog stuff for them, have more to do. Um, I've had um, veterans organizations donate or some organizations like donate a service dog to me. Um, I just need to find a veteran for that dog to go to, and they're going to donate it. Um, 
Like it's been huge, like the different avenues. So when you um, say service dog, maybe there's a listener out there now that might know that person. What exactly do you mean by that? And what would they need to do to get yeah, in the, contact with you? They just need to contact me here at UCM. So the UCM, I'm updating my, so the directory from UCM will have my new information. Um, so they'll be able to f- contact me here at UCM and then I can. And when you say service dog, can you, uh, explain exactly what you mean with that uh, just a, a service animal that um i don't know if it can be trained or is already trained okay. but the, the organization said they would like to donate a service animal to a veteran so maybe an, a veteran experiencing some yeah, some type of hard hardship yeah i would just say okay. any type of hardship so but it's definitely a start i can at least get them in contact with that organization so and then um, I've been asked to do some stuff for the veterans, the veterans home. I recorded a Veterans Day message. So it was very heartwarming. Like the, so a lady from the veterans home contacted me and said, hey, can you be, we would like for you to be a, the keynote speaker for Veterans Day. And I'm, I'm like, wow, that's a lot, but why me? And she's like, so during the pandemic, these veterans couldn't see their families. And she's like, you gave them somebody to root for every week. Like you kept their spirits up. I'm like, wow, that's that. That brought me to tears. Like mm. thinking that, wow, you made such an impact. Yeah. So that was very unbeknownst um, to you too. Yeah. You're in 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 that world there, doing what you were doing, and then yeah. after the fact, these people, like my mother, is a huge fan. I have as I've already said well, again. Awesome. Thank you, and mom. I'm sitting here with him right now. So. <laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> I might get another autograph for you. Um, yeah, it's been – so I – obviously, I, I'm not afraid to cry. I did a lot on TV, which more than I thought I would. But I've had – so I've had some moms contact me. So, for example, this this young man um, he has some special needs, and he's afraid of heights. And they went to, like, a golf – like, a top golf. Mm. And they had to go to, like, a second floor. I've never yeah. been to top – but she explained it to yeah, me. Yeah, they have the – levels yeah and he didn't want to go and she's like hey and he's like if murph can do it i can do it and she said for the first time he conquered his here fear of heights because he he was thinking about you and i'm like it made me cry just listening to her tell the story like it it was very emotional to hear like these people say these things and like my son has been afraid to do this, but he's like, if Murph can do it, then I could do it. Like I've had so many of those stories, like it's pretty overwhelming or people had a veteran reach out to me and then said that he was basically, he was going to end his life. And he's like, I saw you on the show and you caught my attention. And then he said, you know what? Then I'm like, well, I got to stay tuned for next week. <laughs> and he said, before I know it, like 10 weeks had passed and the thought of taking my life just, kind of went away so and we we message each other actually probably at least once a month now since the show just checking in on him he's doing good i think you know these times and everything going on is really highlighted a lot of things but the world needs heroes and they can come in all shapes sizes and forms and you'd be surprised i think your story is a great example of that uh you know we we started off with how you got there what you thought of it but now uh, kind of hearing the impact that you had on everybody from the basic of my mom just liking you and thinking you're a great guy to the things that you just spoke yeah, to. Just, just you know, talking someone or 
not talking someone, but saving someone from ending their own life. Yeah, and, and how many are out there that also fears. watch you that you haven't spoke to, yeah. Yeah. that you influenced? Yeah, it was. It's been. It was overwhelming because when when the season finale, I had I had over twelve hundred messages between Instagram, mm. Facebook, my email here at work. It, it took a while, but I answered every one of them back. But at mm-hmm. least a thank you, because if you were, if you were kind enough to to say, hey, you know, reach out to me, and um, then I, I at least wanted to write back with a thank you. And and some of the, you know, there was some pretty amazing things that some of the people said, and like I said, or shared with me. So it was, and a lot of people, you know, still message to this day. Um, I've had the I've been fortunate enough to to work with some UCM alumni stuff. Um, like I've <clears throat> actually I just did a podcast for um, UCM alumni that actually I think just airs in the next day or two. So it's been a good opportunity to to also help promote UCM um, because now you know I wore the UCM shirt, so <laughs> like a lot of alumni reached out to me. A lot of alumni have. Um, there's a handful of alumni that have reconnected. You know, they've they've got back involved, or they've done other things, or increased maybe their um, their scholarship money. Um, you know, the the lady. So there's an anchor south of Warrensburg. Or, uh, there's a Navy anchor south of the student union. Um, it's for her father. Her mm. the, so. She came in and told me, yeah, this scholarship is in my father's name, and that anchor south of the Union is for him. So she came in and talked to me, and um, it was a great chance to meet her. And she had some issues, and she got them cleared up and, like, is very happy to be part of UCM again. And I'm not saying I'm the one that did it, but the show opened up an avenue it gives maybe her a point of contact. Helps people reconnect. Helps people... Um, maybe make those connections that they just lost track of. Yeah, so it was it was a great experience to talk to. I had a Marine, a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel that was passing through the air that's a UCM grad. He was just passing through on some normal travels, and he, he saw you on the show, and um, I'm a UCM alum. Here's my card. If you need anything, let me know. I'm like, well, that's great contacts because, you know, we have students graduating that, that need internships or jobs, mm-hmm. and why not reach out to our alumni, you know, and use them? Because I'm sure that a UCM alum, especially because if they believe in the school that they graduated from, are going to be willing to help out those new graduates. So so that's kind of why I'm stepping into a new role here at UCM. Um, I'll be working with alumni um, admissions and recruiting. So I can continue to work with veterans, but now I'll just be basically almost like a veteran recruiter, if you will. I'll be talking to to veterans about why you should come why you should come to UCM and things of that nature. So so you'll kind of be going back to your uh, Marines days where you were a recruiter. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Are you yeah. going to start teaching here? Uh, you know, the thought had crossed my mind. Um, I do like being on the podium. It's it's kind of fun. Um, I like interacting with the students. Um, so it's something I have considered. You know, being a junk faculty. Uh, maybe once I settle into this role a little bit, um, you know, taking a look and seeing what classes are available. Um, well, I can already see a future in what we just discussed and the team building aspect of the, the show 
the the testimonial side and where you were doing the interviews and talking and and what you went through there could be potential in that right there on something that would benefit because not everybody gets the privilege of the military service and that type of experience where you go through the boot camp or the deployment but what you just described um, with the show definitely sounds like something like that Uh, and we need more team building in my opinion in this world a lot more instead of being divisive we could bring people together that would be great I agree Maybe yeah, we, that could be a, a future department headed by Dr. <laughs> Kelly Murphy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So I think that's all we have uh, on time. So thank you so much for being here today. It's a, been a pleasure hearing about your story and just uh, your t- time both in the military, in the Marines, as well as on the show, and just how much of an impact you had on people's lives. I mean... Um, yes, Murph. Always a privilege to yeah. talk to you. I'm no, sorry we you. haven't. I know you're very busy now, but yeah. I, I do. I miss seeing you too. So yeah. yeah, we'll have to stay connected. And Garrett, if you, you know, you and I can continue this relationship and you know do some more activities. And as my role grows and it changes and it develops, then then maybe you and I and Dewey can sit down and we can you know yeah. talk about some of the things and some more veterans things um, that I learned about within the community and. Maybe reconnect with some more veterans from UCM. Yeah, I would like to expand. We Garrett and I yeah. just talked about this yesterday, so we'd like to expand the podcast into the community. Yeah. Um, UCM is such a huge part of the community anyway, but to just actually branch out into the, the veterans' home, the VA, the types gotcha. of things yeah. that are around here. That would here, be so. great. Yeah. yeah. So, Kelly Murphy, an honor and a privilege. Yeah. Well, thank Definitely. you, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, So to our audience, uh, don't forget about the UCM Veterans Voice Survey. We would love to hear your feedback so we can make this show even better. The survey is located on Facebook and Twitter uh, on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Uh, You can like us on Facebook at the UCM Veterans Voice and follow us on Twitter at CM Veterans Voice. Know you. And I'll let you plug your Instagram because I know that's a big thing. <laughs> if you even need to. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm at KWMurph72. So KM, or excuse me, KWMURPH72. I'm also on Twitter, but I don't really know how to use Twitter very well. So I'm not really on it so much. I do have an account, um, but Instagram is my primary means of, and I, that's how I keep people updated on the show as well. Like I said, so they're, they're filming season two right now. They're actually day four of filming. Um, so as I get updates um, from the show and I'm allowed to post, then you know keep an eye out for that too. But um, if you haven't seen season one, you can see that on Amazon Prime. It's actually my mug when you type in Tempest <laughs> now, which is really different. <laughs> it's really weird to go to Amazon and see a picture of yourself. So it's on CBS All Access or Amazon Prime. Um, are the primary ways of, of, of checking it out. But if you haven't seen it, then definitely watch for season two because I think it's going to be a show that's been around. It's going to be around for a long time. Yeah. So like and follow us and then go and follow Murph on Twitter and Instagram. Be sure to tune back in for our next episode on November 27th. And as always, thanks for listening.